Well, it's that time of year. Across the country, high school students are prepping for advanced placement exams in various topics. And here on American History TV, we're going to take a look at the 2023 Advanced Placement U.S. History Exam. Joining us, Jason Stacy, a history professor at Southern Illinois University in Edwardsville, and Matt Ellington, who teaches AP History at Ayala High School in Chino Hills, California. Mr. Ellington, if we could start with you, what exactly is the AP History Exam? Well, good morning and thanks for having us on. Uh, the AP US History Exam is an end of course exam that tests students' knowledge and skills relating US to US history. It's designed to be a, a test and the course is designed as such to mimic a um, college level course in terms of the content and the skills that students need to be able to um, succeed at a college level. So it's, it's really a combination of a survey course that starts in 1491, which is the year before Columbus comes, all the way to the present, or at least until 9-11 and potentially farther. So it covers the equivalent of two semesters in college, and um, students are tested in a variety of ways, including multiple choice, short answer, long essay, and DBQ. This year's test will be on Friday, May 5th, 2023. What is DBQ? Oh, thank you, I'm sorry for the jargon. So a DBQ is a document-based essay question. One of the things that's so critical in an AP US history course and in, in history courses in college in general is that students need to be able to move beyond simply reading textbooks and getting their information from a teacher or a lecture. Instead, students need to be able to work with primary sources. These are sources from the time period written by the people who were involved in the history of that era. And so the document-based essay question is, is a vehicle that the College Board has created to test students not just knowledge of the time period, but their ability to kind of think like a historian, their ability to analyze on the fly excerpts from various primary sources that they may not have ever seen before and incorporate information from them into their essay response as well as um, being able to demonstrate that they can kind of think and reason about those sources historically. And we'll look at some of those primary sources in a minute, but how many kids take this test and what's the pass rate? A lot of kids take this test. Hundreds of thousands of kids take this test across the globe, primarily, of course, in the United States since it is AP US history. The pass rate varies a little bit each year. Um, the, the AP exam is scored on a scale of one to five, and so colleges have some discretion about what they consider a pass, passing score. Most colleges and universities will grant a passing score at a scale of three. Um, and generally speaking, U.S. history's pass rate, if you use three as passing, three, four, or five, is right around that 50% range, usually in the low 50s, occasionally it dips into the upper 40s. That does make this course a little bit harder than the average course, and I suspect that's because unlike, say, a calculus course or an advanced Spanish course, there, there aren't really prerequisites uh, to take AP US history. A lot of students will take this as their first course, which is great. It's a great way to introduce students to the rigors of college. And even though the pass rate is a little bit lower, there's a lot of good research that shows that students who take on the challenge of AP and take the course and the exam, even if they fall short, have gained so much more in terms of their 
understanding of American history, their ability to think critically and historically, their ability to kind of persevere and absorb large amounts of information that statistically speaking, those students, even when you hold other factors such as race, ethnicity, income, um, even when you consider those other factors, these students tend to perform better in college having taken an AP course. Well, Matt Ellington and Jason Stacy are also co-authors, and this is their book, Fabric of a Nation, A Brief History with Skills and Sources for the AP. Professor Stacy, what is the College Board, and do you have involvement in the grading of these tests? Uh, the College Board is an organization that, um, among other things, uh, oversees the creation of all of the uh, AP tests. They work along with uh, ETS um, to create those tests, and they also generate the curricula uh, that are um, evaluated on those tests. And, and that curricula uh, includes um, AP government, AP US history, AP economics, the mathematics and science. And so it's a, it's a, it's a large organization. Uh, it's uh, critical uh, to American schools, uh, specifically through the AP program. Uh, and it's been uh, doing its work for a long time, at least since the 1950s to my knowledge. And do you find the testing to be fair in a sense? I, I guess there's a better word to describe it, but how would you describe the testing? I think it's very fair, and, and, and this is based on um, some long experience I've had scoring the exams. Uh, I was a reader uh, for the AP US History test for about 20 years, um, and it's very much a process that uh, involves teachers and college professors who come together and help establish the standards by which the essays are evaluated based on a sampling of uh, students who take the test in a particular year. And then they are scored by human beings who teach US history and have uh, worked with students on all of this material and uh, have a lot of experience evaluating their own students and are trained very carefully uh, and precisely on the rubrics uh, so that all of the students get a fair evaluation. And of course, um, Many of the uh, essays that are scored are back read by a table leader to confirm that those scores are accurate. So it's not just uh, one person necessarily having a bad day and giving scores. There's, uh, there's an attempt to have some quality control there. And uh, the uh, readers themselves that are scoring them, uh, they are continually uh, evaluated for their accuracy throughout the uh, reading experience, which takes place over about a week the summer after uh, every exam each year. Well, we'll start with you, Professor Stacy, but this is a question for both of you. What's your recommendation to students who are prepping for this test? Well, recommendations for right now would be to uh, begin the process since we're less than a month from the test to begin the process of going back through some of that early material that they studied way back there in august and september uh, they've got notes from their teachers um, they've also got their textbook and you know one of the benefits of a textbook uh, is that most of your APUS history textbooks have key terms that are bolded and defined uh, in each chapter. 
And a way to form a kind of handy study guide is to review those key terms because they will trigger your memory about much of the material that you've talked about. And also, you know, raise some questions to say, I don't remember this particular term. Uh, maybe I recognize it, but I don't remember the details of it. So I'm going to go deeper into that chapter and remind myself of that material. But it's worthwhile at this point, a little less than a month out, to go back to that early material and begin to study it forward. Because, of course, history is dependent upon change over time and causation. And so you can look at what you've learned before as a narrative of cause and effect. And to think about some of those chains of causation that lead to the events that, uh, that shape the whole narrative over the course of the year. Mr. Ellington. Yeah, I completely agree with all of that. I'd like to add that I think it's really important for students to diagnose kind of where they are by taking a practice test and looking at some of the, the sample or the released questions and looking at are, are there deficiencies in certain time periods where they don't recall, maybe because it was a long time ago or just certain topics were more difficult for them to understand. And along with the content, there's also a set of skills and different types of questions. So students should take a full practice test or at least parts of practice tests and they can get those from the College Board's website, from a review book, perhaps their teacher sharing those with them in class or on, on the College Board's website to, to see kind of where they are as a baseline because once they establish that baseline then the next step of course is to make a plan to, to look at how many days are remaining, what skills and what content areas students need to really shore up and then to also look at the kinds of resources that they have that are available. Uh, Jason mentioned the textbook, for example, and oftentimes students will have lecture notes and they'll have handouts. They may purchase a review book and there are online video sources and practice questions and whatnot. Matter of fact, it's really easy for students to get overwhelmed with just too much you know, um, content. And so that's why it's important once they've kind of diagnosed their strengths and weaknesses, once they've kind of surveyed the content to think about themselves, what resonates for them, what, what kinds of materials are they most drawn to. And then with that in mind, looking at the calendar, looking at how the test is weighted and formatted, create a realistic, honest, detailed plan to get them from where they are today to where they need to be the morning of May 5th. And then the last thing I would encourage is for students to stick with the plan. It's great to make a plan, but you actually have to follow through and put in the time and the energy of studying and reviewing and self-quizzing. And sometimes what happens is students make an ambitious plan and then they fall behind. And so my advice to students in that scenario is if that happens to you, be honest. Is there time to, to, re, to recover and make this work, or do you need to modify the plan? Were you too ambitious, right? That's okay. It'd be better to modify the plan to make sure that you make it all the way through than to have this elaborate plan and you only make it maybe a third of the way through, and so there's still a lot of real holes left. And the last thing I would say, which kind of piggybacks on, on the previous question about, about the reading and how these exams are scored, is it's important for students to keep in mind, particularly when it comes to the written portion of the test, which is 60% of the test, the essays and the short answer, in that College Board is never grading these things for what they don't include. They're grading them for what they do include. So students, as long as they know 
the, the, the basic key concepts, they can feel comfortable that as long as they, they have a decent body of knowledge, it's okay if they don't remember a specific fact, a specific law, a specific court case necessarily, because we won't penalize them for what they're not including in an essay. We're simply looking to reward them for what they do include and what they do demonstrate. And as Jason said, these essays are graded by history teachers and college professors. We're on their side. We're actively looking for ways that we can give them a higher score when we grade these. Now you've both mentioned time periods and we want to show how the time periods are divided in the AP history exam. And it begins in 1491, it goes through 1980 to the, to the present, what you said, uh, basically 9-11. But there are some overlaps in here, such as 1800 to 1848. But then the next time period is 1844 to 1877, and then we have 1865 to 1898, uh, et cetera, et cetera. What's, how did you come up with these divisions in time? Uh, well, I didn't come up with them, and neither did Jason. These time periods were established by the College Board when they redesigned the course several years ago. And they're really in response to teachers and students asking for a little bit more clarity. Back in the day, because I like Jason, I've taught this course for many years now, uh, they gave us very little information. And so we were constantly wondering, well, what's more important, what's less important? And so in response to that, College Board organized the course around nine time periods. Now, not all textbooks are aligned to those, ours is, but some aren't, and not all teachers teach to those, and that's okay because history is history, and students aren't expected to memorize those, though they do represent turning points and anytime you take a you, you take a piece of history and you put a start and an end what you're doing essentially is you're creating a narrative so you mentioned the overlap periods for example period four which is commonly referred to as the antebellum era the decades before the civil wars 1800 jefferson's election to 1848 that's a specific date and so it would be good for students to know, not critical, but good for them to know that that's the date of the Seneca Falls Declaration of Rights and Sentiments as you know, a kind of an early kickoff to the women's rights movement and the, the, the movement to grant them suffrage. Now, the next time period is period five, and that overlaps 1844 to 1877. And the reason for that overlap is to include the election of 1844, which elected James K. Polk to the presidency on a very expansionist platform that he did indeed follow through with in gaining um, California through the Mexican-American War, the Oregon Territory through a negotiation with, with Spain as well, and annexing Texas, which technically happened right before he was elected. Um, or took office. And so what College Board has done by that overlap is say, we want a period of time that's the antebellum era that includes Jefferson and Jackson and industrialization and these reform movements, but we don't want to include the Mexican-American War because that fits better with the story of the Civil War and the divisions of the 1850s. So. What we see there with Unit 5 is, is a unit that, that overlaps to get Polk and the Mexican-American War in that goes all the way through the divisions of the 50s, the Civil War in the first half of the 1860s, then Reconstruction. And then again, we see that same overlap between Unit 5 and Unit 6. Unit 6 is the Gilded Age, 1865 to 1898, but again, it's, um, 
it's overlapping because College Board is saying that the story of reconstruction, of putting our country back together, really belongs with the story of the Civil War and then the other elements that are happening during the Gilded Age, the second wave of industrialization and urbanization and immigration, mass immigration from um, from Europe and whatnot, that that's, that's a separate story. So those overlaps really represent attempts to shape a narrative, to tell a story, and to identify some key turning points. And so students should definitely be familiar with that. Not to mention, the time periods also give us one other, uh, a couple other uh, pieces that are really helpful for students. One of those is that each of the time periods is weighted. So by giving us time periods and then waiting the time periods, College Board has helped teachers and students focus on what's more or less important in terms of the exam. So for example, the first and last time period, the first time period, 1491, the year before Columbus sails across uh, the Atlantic Ocean. So looking at the kind of state of North America on the eve of permanent European contact to 1607, uh, the founding of Jamestown, the first permanent British colony in North America, that's 5%, 4 to 6% of the AP exam. Likewise, the last time period, 1980, Ronald Reagan's election to the present, or at least till about 9-11, that's also 5% of the exam. So they can't be skipped, but they're not core parts of the course and the test. Unit two, which is the colonial era, 1607 Jamestown, to 1754, the beginning of the French-Indian War, that's about six to eight percent. So more, but not as much as the remaining time periods. Periods three through eight are really the heart of the course. Eighty to eighty-five percent of the test covers those time periods. And so the periods give us not just a, an idea of, of how the story can be told, but also help students in deciding how to kind of structure their study and their review for the course. Jason Stacy, as old as the country is, I think there's been a complaint about history as a memorization of dates and how history is more fluid than that. What is the importance of dates? That's a great question. You know, dates are a tool. And what they do is they help us navigate time. And that's how students should think about dates. So that, as Matt said, uh, when we look at uh, period four versus period five, and we think of the significance of 1848 being Seneca Falls, Seneca Falls Convention really represents the uh, reform movements of the previous generation that come at the end of period four and really shaped that time period. And so while students don't necessarily have to remember that Seneca Falls happened in 1848, if they're aware that Seneca Falls uh, happens, that convention for women's rights and the women's rights to vote, women, uh, their right to vote, takes place between 1800 and 1848, they can conceive of this period as really a kind of the, the beginning of the nation's attempt to reform itself, understand itself, expand, and contend with some of the issues that will continue to translate throughout the rest of US history. And so um, to, to look at that time period and understand that 1848 represents really kind of the end of a chapter, right, that period four, and helps us understand how that whole chapter is defined. So likewise with period five, starting in 1844 with the election of Polk. 
So Polk's election is not significant because it happened in 1844. It is significant because it begins expansionist policies through the Mexican-American War especially that ultimately are going to lead to the Civil War. And so that date is significant because it frames an entire time period that's going to culminate in the Civil War and Reconstruction thereafter, uh, ending in 1877. And then, of course, 1877 is significant as well because uh, in the overall narrative of the APUS history class, it represents another turning point, the end of Reconstruction, and the beginning of another chapter or the beginning of another time period. So do students have to memorize dates for their own sake? No. Do students have to come up with dates on the test? For example, will there be a multiple choice question with five dates? No, that's not gonna happen on the test. But if they can remember key events, turning points, and the dates when those happened, it will help them navigate the whole timeline and to think about change over time and various causation chains that shape this narrative over time. Well, we're gonna show some time period examples now that may or may not be on the test. We have no idea, but this is a political cartoon from 1754, probably familiar to most of our viewers, Ben Franklin's Join or Die. Professor Stacy, what are we looking at here? Well, first of all, I think it's very important for students to keep in mind that when they get a document like this, um, could be on a DBQ, uh, it could be uh, a stimulus for a multiple choice question. It's important for them to look at the source line. And in a DBQ, that source line is going to appear at the top. So when you're looking at this image and you look above it to the source line, you can see who is the creator, where it was published, and when it was published. And when you see that date 1754, it should allow you to begin to navigate that big timeline of all of US history. Most students are gonna remember that the American Revolution is gonna start in 1776, so we're a full generation before that. Also, 1754 is a significant date for the time periods. It's the beginning of the French and Indian War, or as the Europeans called it, the Seven Years' War, when it uh, really began there in 1756. And so students are going to be able to tell, looking at that source line, that this is a primary source from about a generation before the American Revolution, probably taking part as part of that larger conflict, the French and Indian War, 1754 to 1763. And then what students can do is they can practice the skill of sourcing. And in fact, uh, students uh, should source at least three uh, documents uh, in the DBQ. And sourcing involves really three attributes. It's thinking about situation of the primary source, the point of view of the creator of the primary source, the audience for the primary source, and the purpose of the primary source. So when we take a look at this, we see a big snake that's divided up, and it looks like each one of the divisions is labeled, and then the uh, text underneath is join or die. And of course, if we're gonna look at the situation, it's very useful on a DBQ if students can situate these documents 
by referring to something that's happening contemporaneously or in that context. So for example, the, uh, the Albany Conference, which was Ben Franklin's, where Ben Franklin put forth his plan for a union in the face of the uh, French and Indian War, uh, a union of the colonies against uh, the French uh, and their Native American allies. Um, the uh, situation then is uh, in light of the Albany Conference and this proposal to form a union of the colonies uh, for common defense. And as you can see, the head of the snake is NE, New England, and the very tail of the snake is SC, and that's South Carolina. So once the situation uh, is established, the point of view begins, becomes pretty clear. The colonies need to come together uh, for mutual defense. And this was uh, Ben Franklin's proposal at the uh, Albany Conference. It subsequently failed. Neither the British nor the colonies liked the suggestion. But of course, it will be significant later uh, during the American Revolution. Uh, likewise, you can take a look at the uh, audience uh, when you're sourcing a document like this, and the audience are clearly um, uh, British North American colonials uh, who are probably suspicious of each other, and uh, the goal is to uh, get them to unify uh, in the face of the, uh, of the coming war, and of course uh, also um, the purpose uh, as I said, is to try to uh, form this union. So that when practicing sourcing, uh, the context, the audience, and the author, as well as the purpose, all come into play to help students interpret these documents uh, when they're writing their DBQ or when they're using them to uh, answer the stimulus-based multiple choice questions. Matt Ellington. Now I'm going to read a quote that's, uh, well, maybe a little archaic. It's Mary okay. Gove Nichols from 1842, and I need you to tell me why this is significant. Here's the quote. It's from a lecture to the ladies on anatomy and physiology. Quote, children's natural playfulness ensures the proper development of their frames, but they are cramped and confined in every way, especially females. Their dress makes it even more dangerous to exercise, and then if they do, they are checked and told that such things are very improper for a little girl. And yet, under all her disabilities, there are gleams of intelligence to be found even among us that give promise of a brighter day when men and women shall understand all the laws that govern the body and mind and act in accordance with them. Again, Mary Gove Nichols from 1842. What have we just heard? Okay, so literally what we've heard is an excerpt from a primary source. And so just to be clear, primary sources are documents from the time period. And not only is that a task that historians, is, is that a skill to be able to analyze primary sources that, that historians regularly grapple with and students in college history courses are supposed to grapple with, but it's, it makes up actually the majority of the AP US history exam. So we talked briefly about the different parts of the exam, the multiple choice, the document-based essay question, and even uh, one of the short answer questions will all be centered around primary sources, asking students uh, to be able to glean information from primary sources, asking students to be able to connect 
uh, information from a primary source or use a primary source as evidence to support an argument. And as Jason talked about, also being able to think critically about primary sources the way that historians do and being able to source a primary source. So I think it's really important to keep in mind that while these specific primary sources are very unlikely to be on the AP US History exam because they don't tell us what's going to be on the exam, being able to work with these kinds of sources kind of on the fly is a critical skill for students. So in this document, Mary Grove Nichols, who's not someone that um, we expect students to be familiar with, but she is making a couple of arguments here. First off, she talks about child development and how it occurs naturally, and then she contrasts that with social restrictions and limitations placed on women, such as about their dress and what they are and are not allowed to do. And then finally, in that second paragraph, she, she expresses a hope for a, for a brighter day in which both men and women will have more autonomy over the rules um, and understanding of, of the ways that their bodies work. So the first step when students see a primary source document such as this one is to look at the source line, and Jason already talked about that, right, with the Ben Franklin join or die political cartoon. Look at who wrote it, and sometimes you know. Sometimes you, we, you, we expect students to be familiar with Benjamin Franklin and be able to, to bring some information to bear. On the other hand, we don't expect them to know who Mary Nichols was, so that's okay. Uh, you can look at the, the title. So the title gives us a little bit of information that she is lecturing. So perhaps she's part of the what was known as the Lyceum movement back then, where um, middle class lecturers would go from uh, house to house and give these, these, these lectures and these talks back then, which was pretty popular. Um, and we also have the year. The year is helpful because the year situates this in the 1840s. And so then we can start to contextualize and look at what Jason talked about, the historical situation. Hopefully students can maybe connect this to some of the other reform efforts that are taking place. For example, we already talked about how in 1848 there's, there's a Seneca Falls Declaration of Rights and Sentiments. And so students may be able to make a connection between this and what uh, she is arguing here and and what those suffragists were arguing there. Though, interestingly, Seneca Falls is more about political equality and she's making an argument more about social equality here, but they still are both part of a larger uh, movement of reform. And so students can use this as an example if, for example, they were writing an essay about reform movements during this time period and they could, in, in, when talking about women, they could talk about um, this document. They could also connect it to some of the larger trends that are taking place. For example, this is an era of the kind of first industrial revolution in the United States, which is really changing expectations and gender roles even for men, for, for middle and upper middle class men and women as people move to cities and men are going off to work, there's a redefinition of those roles. And you see the emergence of this notion of separate spheres, that the men's sphere is the world of work and politics and business, and the women's sphere is a sphere of domesticity, of taking care of the home, of the moral education for children, um, and what we would consider you know, traditional old-fashioned views of what women should do. And of course, 
in this document, we have an example of, of a woman from the time period who is pushing back against that and arguing for change. We know that a lot of the change won't take place until later, but if students can contextualize this, if they can set it in the time period, if they can look at who wrote it, now they may not know much about her, but they can use her as a template and, con and, and connect her to maybe other reformers that they do know. And so that gets us to also looking at the point of view of reformers during this time period, whether it's uh, Nichols or whether it's, you know, Stanton or um, Susan B. Anthony or some of these, these, these other people. And they can also examine point of view, an, another element of the sourcing that Jason talked about, by looking just at the wording itself and how she explains that child development is natural and then contrast that with women being confined and cramped and being told it's dangerous. And so we can see some of her, not just her bias, but her perspective expressed in the argument. So one of the tasks that students need to do, particularly on the document-based essay question, is they need to fashion an argument that's in response to the question being asked that uses information from the documents, but then also for at least three of the documents, sources those documents. In other words, thinks critically and analyzes one of those features that Jason mentioned, the historical situation, the intended audience, the purpose, or even the point of view. Well, Jason Stacy is a professor at Southern Illinois University in Edwardsville, and our next example is from Edwardsville, Illinois, and it's a speech by somebody much more familiar than perhaps Mary Gove Nichols is to people. Quote, our reliance is in the love of liberty which God has planted in our bosoms. Our defense is in the preservation of the spirit which prizes liberty as the heritage of all men in all lands everywhere. Destroy this spirit and you have planted the seeds of despotism around your own doors. Familiarize yourselves with the chains of bondage and you are preparing your own limbs to wear them. This is from 1858. Abraham Lincoln. Professor Stacy. It's a very interesting document, Peter, and it's a very tricky document. Um, a student who perhaps skipped the source line or just glanced at it and saw Abraham Lincoln might think this is a speech during the Civil War. And of course, if we look at it and we remember the significant date of the beginning of the Civil War in 1861, or Lincoln's election to the presidency in 1860, uh, we can see that this is taking place well before the Civil War and Lincoln was president. And so when would Lincoln be giving a public address like this? When does he acquire that kind of national significance that we would record a speech from him? And it's during the Lincoln-Douglas debates of 1858 when, after he returned uh, to politics, after retiring from it uh, to become a lawyer, he comes back about 10 years later. Um, and uh, in this speech, uh, he is uh, in a uh, political contest with uh, Stephen A. Douglas uh, for the Senate, a contest which he loses. 
And so if we look at the source line, that should cue us in that this is different than a Civil War document exclusively, but it does fall into that period five and that era when the Civil War really becomes the center of historical gravity uh, during that time period. And so let's, let's practice some of that sourcing with that document. The situation is, is pretty clear. And if students were going to come up with a, a fact to help show that they understand the situation, they could bring in the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Um, they could also uh, note that the, uh, one of the issues of the Lincoln-Douglas debates was the extension of the institution of slavery to the West in the aftermath of the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, or the conflict already going on over enslavement of black people in Kansas uh, starting in 1856. And so that's some of the situation that helps frame uh, this document that students can bring in as they use this document as part of their sourcing. But let's also look at the point of view. Clearly, this is a kind of familiar Lincoln a Lincoln who is speaking against the institution of slavery. But we know from its situation, he is probably arguing against its extension. Lincoln was very careful about promoting abolitionist politics, at least until uh, he was elected president, and in fact, even a couple years into the Civil War. And so the point of view here um, is, uh, expressed in terms of if slavery is allowed to extend the audience of voters who are going to be white men in Edwardsville, Illinois in 1858 put their own liberty in jeopardy. So it's a very uh, complicated argument in that he is saying if slavery extends you yourselves are in danger. And if students remember the Free Soil Movement, which was a movement uh, primarily in the Democratic Party against the extension of slavery, Lincoln is really making a Free Soil argument here and to a certain extent appealing to Democrats, though he himself is a Republican, which would make sense because he's running against Stephen A. Douglas, a Democrat. So once we think about situation, we think about the point of view, we can uh, also think about the audience, which is probably an audience of both sympathetic and suspicious listeners. These are folks who are going to be coming out to hear the debates so that they're going to be listening to both speakers and probably have their own partisan interests. And so Lincoln's purpose here is probably to attract a broader audience than just avowed Republicans. And, and he needs to. He eventually loses this election uh, in 58. So he's certainly trying to play to the other side. And of course, then it. Uh, it then becomes pretty clear what his purpose is, uh, which is to uh, gain support for his um, plan to restrict the expansion of slavery uh, to the West. And his uh, purpose here is to appeal to that audience that is a largely white uh, male voting audience uh, in the senatorial campaign of 1858. Well, we have an education department here at C-SPAN and they have thousands of students that they are connected with. We reached out to them to get some questions for you two about the AP History exam. And this is from Lauren at Nazareth Area High School in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. She asked, uh, Mr. Ellington, 
what were the successes and failures of Reconstruction and how did it change America? Would that be a potential essay question that would be asked on the AP history exam? Well, absolutely. Maybe not framed that way. College Board likes to sentence frame their essay questions, so and they also like to focus on um, historical reasoning processes. So they might ask about the effects of Reconstruction um, or uh, the extent to which Reconstruction was successful. But Lauren's got a great question, so thank you, Lauren, for asking that question because you really do need to know the successes and the failures of Reconstruction because oftentimes College Board asks students to evaluate how successful something was or evaluate the relative effects of something. And of course, Reconstruction does bring about a lot of change. So to answer Lauren's question, there are there are definitely some several some successes with Reconstruction. The most immediate, of course, is the Civil War and the beginning of Reconstruction permanently ends slavery in the South um, in this country. So that's the, that's the most immediate success. Beyond that, I would say that the largest success along with that are the Reconstruction Amendments. Matter of fact, College Board has even pointed out those amendments in their course framework. So students really need to be familiar with them. So quickly, they're the 13th Amendment, which abolishes slavery, the 14th Amendment, which grants uh, formerly enslaved black people in the South citizenship in this country and also extends to them and everybody equal protection under the law and due process. And then the 15th Amendment, which extends to black men the right to vote. So those are by far the most important successes of Reconstruction, but there's some other successes too. For example, before the Civil War, most states had enacted slave codes. The slave, one of, one of the common slave codes was making it illegal to teach blacks how to read or write, keeping them in a state of illiteracy. And one of the uh, immediate changes we see during Reconstruction, partly through the Freedmen's Bureau and efforts of, of um, the federal government, but also through the efforts of local people on the ground, is a huge surge in education. By the time you get to the mid-1870s, at least half of all African-American children in the South are enrolled in public or private schools. So that is a huge and beneficial change that's taking place in the South. So there are definitely some positives. There's also, politically speaking, uh, black people are getting, black men at least, are getting the right to vote, um, not universally and not throughout the time period, but enough so that we see the election of biracial governments. They're instituting various kinds of reforms in the South. Unfortunately, a lot of that does not last. And so the biggest failures of Reconstruction are the fact that despite the passage of those amendments, despite civil rights legislation, um, many of those rights and privileges are gonna be taken away from black people during and after Reconstruction. And we see those slave codes in, evolve into black codes and eventually what we call Jim Crow laws, creating a system of legalized segregation and discrimination that later in the Plessy versus Ferguson case in 1896, the Supreme Court legalizes and ratifies. So that's a, a, a large failure in Reconstruction. 
Another failure in reconstruction is even though there is there's a, a huge improvement in education, there's another area that would have greatly benefited African Americans in the South, and that'd be the redistribution of land. So you have this large formerly enslaved population, and you've got these white plantation owners, and unfortunately the land is not generally going to be redistributed. And so then that begs the question of what kind of labor system is going to emerge in the South during and after Reconstruction? And what what does happen is the emergence of a labor system known as sharecropping. In theory, sharecropping is better than wage labor because sharecropping gives the workers the opportunity to profit from their hard work and split a share of the proceeds. And sometimes that works, but all too often what we see with sharecropping is that it turns into an exploitative system, a system almost of debt peonage where sometimes people are bound to the land as if they're indentured servants for years and find it very difficult to be successful financially. And then I think the other failure that we have to be honest about is the, the rise of racial violence. This is the era in which you see the establishment of the Ku Klux Klan in which you see violent attacks against black people in the South and uh, white Republicans and white sympathizers. You even see the, the violent overthrow and the assassinations of political leaders, but the overthrows of some city and county governments as well. So there is a, a lot that remains undone. And I would lastly argue that Reconstruction does change this country. Some of the change, changes are temporary in nature, such as, you know, it, uh, widespread voting in the South and biracial governments. Um, but some of the changes are also permanent because they go into the, into the, not just state constitutions, but of course into the federal constitution. And so they lay the groundwork or the foundation for the later civil rights movement that we're gonna see in the 1950s and 1960s. And amendments such as the 14th Amendment, which granted you know, formerly enslaved people citizenship also grant all people born in this country, including immigrants, citizenship. It extends equal protection to all peoples in this country and due process of law to all peoples. And so it's really a redefining of government's responsibility towards its citizens and moving citizenship really out of the domain of states and into the domain of the federal government. So I would say that in the long run, Reconstruction has some hugely beneficial um, changes in America, though many of those, we see them temporarily during the time period, they disappear and then they reemerge later on. Now our next example, Professor Jason Stacy. I think this is my favorite example that we're gonna show, and it's Rosie Scorcher. And it's, uh, it's the cover of sheet music, and I'm looking forward to your two minute take on why this is significant. <laughs> two minutes, start timing me. Um, okay, so first of all, you gotta look at the source line. And notice that the source line will often tell you what kind of primary source it is, if, if it isn't obvious. So this is not a poster, though it looks like one to us, but it's a cover of sheet music. And for students who may not know, sheet music was how people consumed music. Uh, in the late 19th century, they would literally buy um, piano music, and they would have a piano in the house, and they would play this music at home for entertainment. So I, I, I think one of the most important uh, ways of looking at this document is thinking of it in terms of the reasoning process called continuity and change over time. Or maybe your teachers call it CCOT 
for short. There are some continuities in this primary source, and there are some signs of change, uh, both of them over time. So take a look at your date. It's 1897. We're on the cusp of the 20th century. We know that there's a women's suffrage movement going on at this time, though it does not come to fruition until the early 20th century. And it harkens back, of course, to the uh, early 19th century. But let's look at the image itself. What are some continuities that we see here? We see that gender roles are still being portrayed in the way that Matt was talking about earlier, uh, the idea of a cult of domesticity or separate spheres. So that Rosie is uh, wearing a dress, even though she's riding a bike, it's not very safe. Uh, she is uh, looking at us. She looks like she's having fun, but she's clearly riding a women's bike. And um, she is not noticing in the background a man on the bike and he is riding a sports version of a bicycle. Notice how it's got the drop bars. And he looks like he has noticed Rosie. So you get that traditional conception of uh, the male is pursuing the woman, and the woman is kind of innocent. And so you get that continuation, that continuity, of those uh, gender roles from before uh, or earlier in the 19th century. How am I doing on time, Peter? You are over on time, and it was a oh. great explanation. Oh. Unfortunately, we are getting tight on time, but so we want to get in this next student question. And this okay. is from Joshua in Lake Braddock Secondary School in Burke, Virginia. And Joshua asks, how do the populists differ from the progressives? It's a great question. And it also brings in another uh, reasoning process that the College Board assesses you on, which is comparison. So the populists and progressives are often hard to keep apart uh, in your mind because they're really taking place at about the same time, late uh, 19th century. Progressives go uh, into the early 20th century. So here's a very short comparison of the uh, differences uh, and similarities between them. Both are reform movements. Both have their origins in the late 19th century. Both of them are reacting to changes in the Second Industrial Revolution. But the populists are primarily reformers for farmers. And they're primarily interest, they're interested in raising farm prices and uh, also uh, regulating railroads to control transportation costs. They tend to be uh, concentrated in the South, the Midwest, and in the West. Um, their common leaders are from those regions. Um, ben Tillman uh, from the South, Mary Lease from Kansas, Charles McCune from, McCune from Texas, um, or of course William Jennings Bryan famously, um, originally from uh, Illinois. Um, and so um, these uh, populists are primarily rural and they're largely gone by the end of the 19th century. The 1896 election when William Jennings Bryant ran for president for the first time as a Democrat and, the and a populist is really their high point. The progressives are more middle class reformers. They're more interested in fixing uh, what they see are problems in the city and also breaking up uh, monopolies and um, regulating business, uh, ending uh, child labor and also uh, raising health standards. Uh, as I said, they tend to be uh, based in uh, urban or uh, suburban regions. They also tend to be concentrated in the Northeast or to a certain extent in the Midwest, especially the Northern Midwest. 
like Wisconsin, Robert, uh, Robert uh, La Follette, um, senator from Wisconsin, Jane Adams, um, reformer in Chicago, originally from Rockford, Illinois, or of course the most famous uh, progressive uh, of all, Theodore Roosevelt, president of the United States. Um, and this is one of the reasons the progressive movement runs into the 20th century and has some successes in the 20th century, because the progressive movement really goes national in a way that the populists do not. William Jennings Bryant loses the presidency in 96, then loses it two more times. Theodore Roosevelt, on the other hand, uh, modeled himself after the progressives when he became president in uh, 1901 after uh, William McKinley's assassination, then was elected on his own right in uh, 04. And William Howard Taft and Woodrow Wilson are considered progressive presidents as well. And in fact, um, amendments to the Constitution come out of the progressive movement. Um, most famously, uh, the 16th Amendment, the income tax, the 17th Amendment, direct election of senators, the 18th Amendment, prohibition, and the 19th Amendment, uh, granting women uh, the right to vote. And so the progressive <clears throat> movement has a longer term effect and uh, has greater national uh, support and national leaders who speak for it and is more of a middle class reform movement. And one more image we want to show, one more primary source, and this is from your book, Fabric of a Nation, A Brief History with Skills and Sources for the AP. It's the percentage of African Americans registered to vote between the years of 1947 and 1976. There is a you know, steady increase and all of a sudden a big jump. What, what should students extrapolate if they see this graph? Well, I think of the most important element of this graph is not only showing the rising registration of uh, black Americans between 47 and 76, but also notice that the Voting Rights Act of 1965 is highlighted in this secondary source document, which you might see on a DBQ or a multiple choice question. And so it reminds us that the civil rights movement is a very long process and that the pursuit of um, uh, enfranchisement for African Americans against uh, Jim Crow laws and the repression of their right to register to vote took place on the ground uh, throughout the 1950s and early 60s before the passage of the Voting Rights Act. And so students might want to practice a little situation sourcing with this document to show that the um, Voting Rights Act of 1965 in many ways is the culmination of grassroots civil rights movements going all the way back uh, to the late 1940s and especially beginning in the 1950s and early 1960s. Matt Ellington, what are some of your last minute review tips for students? Can they still register to take the test? Does every student take the same test? And is it all given at the exact same time? I know, a lot there. <laughs> I'm trying to keep track here. Okay, um, the registration window has already passed, so students will know if they are or are not taking the test. Um, the test is all given at the same time. It's local time, eight, o'clock or so, they, proctors have a little bit of flexibility between 8 and 9 a.m. locally, Friday, May 5th. There is a late test date for students if an emergency comes up that I think is um, a week and a half later. Um, it's not the, the second week, it's the week after on a Wednesday, maybe the 13th, but I could, could be wrong on that. I have to check that date. Um, and so 
Um, what was the other question that last you asked? Last minute tips. Last minute tips. Okay, so I got a few last minute tips. Um, besides making a plan, sticking to the plan, diagnosing yourself and whatnot, at the last minute, start the night before. Lay out the clothes that you're going to wear. Get all your supplies ready, your number two pencils, your eraser, your pens, you know, um, any good luck charms that you've got, right? Have, have it all laid out, your student IDs, everything that you need to be successful. Pack yourself a snack and a water for the test um, so that you've, so you can consume some of that during the break. And then get a good night's sleep. I think that is critically important. The morning of the test, make sure you arrive early, that you've got everything that you, that, that you need to have. Um, sometimes students ask, should they do last minute cramming, should they not? And that's so much dependent upon the student. Different people operate differently. But make sure you're there on time. Make sure that you trust your instincts. Too often students second guess themselves. Go in there knowing that you've got this. You've put in time for review. You've put in time in the class. You've gone through this course and you want to, to do your best job possible. And then hold yourself up, hold your head up high. Walk out of that room confident that regardless of the score, I think you're better off for having challenged yourself, taking the course, taking the exam, and you won't even find out the score until summertime anyway. So that's my last minute advice for students. Matt Ellington is an AP history teacher at Ayala High School in Chino Hills, California. Jason Stacy, history professor, Southern Illinois University at Edwardsville. Gentlemen, thank you for helping us to review the AP history exam. We appreciate thank your time you, on American History TV. Thank, Thank you. you. Good luck, everyone. Good luck.